I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. My guest today is Aaron Levant, who has been one of the most successful innovators and creative entrepreneurs of the 21st century. Raised on graffiti and hip-hop in Southern California, he transitioned to graphic design in the early days of the streetwear industry, when rap was considered a fad and skaters the lowest end of the totem pole. What he saw birthed Agenda, a streetwear trade show that gave voice to a community on the verge of going global. Complex Con followed a similar track. And then a few years later, he decided to change his focus from experiential to digital and launch Network, that's N-T-W-R-K, an e-commerce and content app and platform that attracted the attention of investors like Jimmy Iovine, Drake Farrell, LeBron James, Live Nation, Foot Locker, Warner Brothers, and others. So I guess he knows what he's doing. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, how you doing? Good. Very uh, generous intro. Okay, good. I'm glad <laughs> you I'll like it. it. <laughs> it's a good start. I'll take right? it. Excellent. Yeah. Well, you did. You know, you did do an amazing amount of uh, work, and and has saw so many opportunities that were out there as part of the culture. Directly starting with the world we're in right now, given that social distancing is the name of the game, it looks like you had a crystal ball abandoning live experience for digital you sold off your experiential businesses a few years ago so what did you see coming i'm sure it wasn't corona yeah it's funny you asked that because that was something honestly like one of the most conflicted decisions i've ever made in my whole life because i spent 15 plus years honing and cultivating a skill set around procuring and producing you know live experiences whether it be for the trade or for consumers and um you know in 2018 when i quit doing that and walked away from that i was arguably at the the peak of my career and success in that in that market with the success of running complex con which everyone was super excited about and i was personally super excited about it was a really fucking hard decision to make and i was very conflicted to the point where and I don't usually call others when I'm making decisions, but like this is the one I had to call almost all my, you know, unofficial conciliaries to to talk to me about it because I was on the fence. And ultimately, I made that jump, and I don't really know what it was other than I am always feeling like I'm like a shark in the sense of like if I stop moving, I'll die. I don't know if I felt I was making the right decision, but it felt right to keep moving forward. And by no means did I know this was going to happen, but. Luckily, it, it landed me in the right place of getting out of, ex, you know, largely out of experiential in, in 2018, because today I probably would be in a pretty bad financial shape if uh, the majority of my career was based in that right now. Well, totally. And and every brand, every and media company, everybody was going experiential. So it wasn't dying down or seemed like there was no future 
there. It was the future for so long. What do, what do you think the future is now with regard to, for all those brands and, and companies that had been invested in the experiential, especially at the same time as retail is dying? You know, a lot of what happened, people are saying, well, it was going to happen anyway, and this sort of sped everything up. But it did give them some breathing room. So when you have Macy's closing and Neiman Marcus potentially closing and experiential was something that everyone was thinking, well, maybe this will help us. We could turn our stores into, you know, destinations that people would just want to come there and hang out and buy something eventually. Yeah, I'm still a big believer in experiential. and I'm still a firm believer that this is this is a temporary you know, this is very real. So I don't want to say it's a fear, but this is a temporary paralysis on experiential. I still believe that until the end of time, people are going to go to concerts, people are going to go to events, marketplaces, the Rose Bowl swap meet, whatever, whatever that is that they go to. I still think that's going to happen. We may have a period in which it's an extreme low, but I believe it's going to come back because I believe very strongly in the power of face-to-face interaction and the strongest relationships that I've ever built in the biggest business deals and all the above have been forged over talking to someone face-to-face and you know, really understanding each other, body language, all these things I, I think are huge. So I think it'll come back, but I think this is a um, changing of the guard, if you will. You mentioned Neiman Marcus, Macy's. You know, These are companies that have not innovated in a long, long time. And I think those companies, uh, there are dinosaurs of the past, will die off and new innovative companies will come forward that bridge the gap between the new version of experiential and digital experience. And obviously, you know, the other byproduct of this is, you know, you see whatever it is, the obvious like Zoom, you know, going through the ceiling, right? You know, these new tools, I think you're going to see an enhanced uh, speed in which we adopt virtual experience. I think a great example is like this Travis Scott Fortnite concert the other day that 12 and a half million people watch concurrently. Um, That's an immersive, interactive, live music experience. I think you're going to see a lot of that happening. The creators of Fortnite, Epic Games are calling it the metaverse. You know, this almost ready player one like existence that um, people are going to live through VR and through their computers and gaming consoles. I think you're going to see that happening as well. And maybe some cross between physical and digital, you know, some augmented experience. Um, so I, I think all of these things are going to happen, but the inevitable is the people who have not innovated a long time will will die and, and be extinct. And you'll see a new crop of experiences coming, whether physically or digitally or both. So that leaves room for a lot of new startups, probably, right? That you think will emerge and then be ready for when everybody is like dying to get out there and see people again and connect, you know, assuming we get a vaccine or, you know, some things are done to alleviate the condition we're in now, that there'll be all this pent up energy and interest in going out and like, shit, you know, I better party now because I don't know (laughs) when it's going to happen again. Yeah, I think there's going to be a ton of startups. And I think in general, these times of extreme uh, depression in, in the markets, not in the financial markets, but just you know, the economy and, and all these things create a willingness from consumers to listen to new ideas. It also creates companies to change their behavior forcibly, right? And my first big successful company, which was Agenda, it really came out of the 2007 housing crisis. 
And I was a little tiny company who was doing something that I thought was cool, but I have big financing. It was very independent. And I had this big competitor called ASR, which if you remember, was the action sports retailer show that had been around for 30 years. It was the big, you know, huge behemoth. And when the housing crisis happened, all the brands, you know, lost all their marketing budgets and they all had to look at new ways to innovate more scrappy, how to market themselves cheaper. And I grew my company 2000% between 2007 and 2009, right? Those are unheard of growth numbers. That was because the market, the macroeconomic conditions forced people to change and forced people to look at new things. And I believe the same thing is going to happen now. You're going to see a new crop of companies that were either around or will be started off of this or will become extremely successful because people are forced to change their behavior, brands or consumers. But uh, you're looking back at it now and sort of making sense of what happened. But when you did that, you had no idea. You weren't doing it because it was a business opportunity alone. You were a part of the culture itself. You had grown up in it. You saw it. You believed in it. You were invested in it. That w- It was your life. If I may go back, you asked if I... I remember ASR. Well, sure I do, because you may remember me or paper being around in those days. And I know your old mentor, your old original friend, Louis from Gypsies and Thieves, who used to be, you know, visit paper regularly when he came to New York and loved to hang out with them. Great guy. Uh, what's he up to now, by the way, just as a curiosity? Uh, I'm, I'm catching up with him on a Zoom call tomorrow, so I'm going to ask him. But, Tell uh, him I said hi, definitely. <laughs> I really, really I will. will. I think really he introduced will. me to, to Carlo in yeah. 1999. <laughs> True that, yeah, because uh, Carlo, who has actually been on my show recently, and you can, you might enjoy, if you have the time, to go back and listen to our podcast talking about art and uh, history of psychedelic art and things like that. But back in those days, there was also this other thing, the 432F. Which is agenda pre-agenda. Right. That was the, the prototype. And that was just a bunch of people getting together, small companies who were into the scene, who could, who didn't have a place in the ASR or just couldn't afford to be in ASR. It was just like overwhelming. So back to my point, is it more important to be invested in the culture and then, you know, see the opportunity or is it more about a business opportunity that everybody's going to come back in two years? So what can I do now to make that happen versus, oh, I'm really into, you know, film or something, you know, interesting. And how do I take that and make that into something special? Yeah, I'm a firm believer that the things that succeed and resonate with with people are the things that happen organically and don't happen off of a you know well polished business plan right and when i started agenda with louis and really that time of my life nothing i was doing was informed by what i thought was a great you know had a good margin or you know was going to pay off i was just trying to figure out how to make a living off of stuff that i thought was cool and at that time, it was graffiti, streetwear, graphic design, music, you know, just shit that I liked. And organically, I just saw this opportunity to get my friends together and do this event. And I wasn't even trying to make money. I was like, oh, let's just not give the big corporate company money and let's just pool together and do this. And the byproduct is that because it was organic and it resonated. It was around since 2003. For many years, from 2003 to 2007, I made no fucking money. I was looking at my parents' house until I was 23 years old. And I think then it just happened that we were at the right place, right time, right idea. And, you know, I happen to be a 
you know, 20 something year old kid who was, you know, uh, actually representative of the consumer group that we were selling to. And people listened to me and the economic downturn turned up the volume on my voice. And people said, okay, I don't have $50,000 anymore. I have 5,000. Well, this kid's offering me an opportunity and they went with it. Right. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I think begrudgingly, I, I've become more of a systematic businessman. I've learned about, you know, a budget and a PL and the margin and the exit and the multiple and the EBITDA. And I've, you know, these things that I've learned over time. I never went to college. I never finished high school. And, you know, I almost want to unlearn this stuff because I feel like I was way better when I just, you know, went off of the feeling of like what I thought was cool. And like, you know, I feel like I'm so much less interesting the further I go because the organic energy or passion is really what I think drives success so much more so than like any of this kind of institutional knowledge that I've picked up along the way that I'd like to shed like nobody's business. Well, the risk is much higher now, right? And you have these investors, which is great to have, but I know there also can be, you know, some pushing you and and urging you to do various things because of the profit loss and and factors that come into play. How do you handle that? You know, I'm going to tell you, I've been very lucky, which is I've been through two very distinct experiences, which is I built Agenda from 2003 to 2013, and then I sold it to a huge corporate company. And I went inside and worked at that company for the next five years because I had never gone to college. And that was basically like my MBA, right? I basically learned business there. I never made a budget. I just did everything just by gut. And I learned like the real corporate public company, financial structure, reporting, budgets, hierarchy. And going back to the question you asked me in the beginning, when I quit, I ended up going and, you know, our founding investor is Jimmy Iovine, who is, uh, you know, a visionary. and really like one of the biggest things that inspired me to quit talking to him, even though he's been wildly successful at the highest levels of business, selling companies for billions of dollars, he operates and thinks of stuff like the way I thought about it when I was 16 to 19 years old. He's not thinking about budgets or P&L or margin. He's thinking about energy and culture and ideas. And it was super enlightening to me that people were doing stuff much bigger at a much bigger culture impact than what I was doing, even inside my you know, big corporate company that owned Comic-Con and you know, 500 other events. That's why I left because I feel like I could go back to thinking like the old Aaron and unlearn the shit and get back to ideas and energy. And, and actually under this new structure, for sure, yes, we're thinking about investors in return, but like I was finally able to get back to focusing on culture and ideas and energy. And that's the most refreshing thing that answers why I left and, and how I'm actually not dealing with a lot of corporate bullshit right now. But one thing you didn't have to worry about is authenticity, which is something that every brand today struggles with because everybody wants to be authentic. It's the buzzword. And, you know, you are really are authentic and you have all those relationships that go back to the people who are the kind of the founding fathers of the whole industry. Now with your network, you know, it's, it's not just apparel, you're selling art, you're selling other products as well that are connected to the culture. So there's no, you know, so I think everybody kind of feels it, that this is the, an authentic experience of, that, of this culture. It's not somebody who's just sees, uh, you know, business opportunity. For example, like in the cannabis game, which is, you know, I, I had planned on talking about a little bit later. 
But uh, since I thought of it right now, let's let's jump to that for a second and go back afterwards. But, you know, the Hall of Flowers is something that you're also involved with, it's, which is cannabis. And, and that's a world that is similar to, you know, the world that you came from, streetwear, that I look at as, as this underground culture that has that's huge but doesn't really get the recognition in the mainstream media that it will eventually, I'm sure. And... Here, at the same time, we know that there are people who have no real connection to this culture are also trying to capitalize on it. And so there's this confusion in the marketplace and a lot of people, you know, just keep bringing up this fact that, well, there are all these people who are, you know, financial people and, and investors and people like that who are just looking to make money. Whereas here we have like a real indigenous underground culture that's, you know, existed all these years. Yeah, I see a huge parallel between what's happening in the cannabis industry right now and the streetwear and action sports business, meaning, you know, it's about brand and there is this idea of authenticity. I think very few people from an end consumer level really understand the authenticity or sometimes even in the B2B space because some people see this like, skateboarding in the 90s like this is the new gold rush and everyone can get in and you know get a piece of the action and you know even again like i i'm flattered that you think i'm authentic in the streetwear street culture space i grew up working for guys like louis polito and rick klotz and being around guys who were really involved from like the late 80s early 90s and you know i see myself as a derivative of a derivative of the true originals i think in the same way that i knew guys who were you know growing in humboldt when everything was still illegal in the 90s and now you know everyone's a cultivator everyone's got a brand everyone's got this you know i think there's very few who have true understanding and true authenticity but it's very much you know the similarity between skateboarding action sports streetwear and what we're seeing in the the cannabis industry today i would say there's some extreme parallels between those two things and it goes into the graphic design and you know this whole like world of products uh, that are, you know, unique to this industry or this world that people have been doing on the down low, you know, just the way kids used to do t-shirts and, you know, everything else. And sometimes they turned into big business, often they didn't. But this is something that's really existing. Do you feel that that's industry or culture will get its time in the spotlight at, at some point or will it always be marginal? I think it's been one of the biggest conversations over the last few years. Uh, I think it's only going to get bigger. You know, I think it is a recession-proof business that is only on its way to getting more and more mainstream. And I think even in relation to our current times right now, where our country has just put itself in a, a massive amount of, of debt in the tune of trillions, every state allowing um, recreational cannabis and at a federal level to gain extra tax income is no longer an idea that we're tackling with from a morality standpoint, but it will be a necessity for people to survive from a monetary standpoint on a, on a, on a federal and state level. Um, so I, I think it's only going to get bigger, more mainstream, more accepted. I think that's inevitable. I think the amount of players in the industry will continue to grow. I, I really hope that it doesn't get over corporatized and you know Philip Morris or whoever the companies are you know figure out how to use their lobbyists to take control and push out all the independent brands and retailers and all that stuff and it's just you know Philip Morris selling pre-rolls at CVS I really applaud the 
independent creativity that, that we see in this business, whether I agree with what, what's cool and what's not with everything, there's still tons of people doing cool shit. And, and I want that to continue. And I think no matter what, though, it is going to be massive. And I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Let's stick with your Hall of Flames. I was actually going to go this year, <laughs> the first time. I was going to do some podcasts there. You may know that I'm affiliated with Burb. They're sponsors of my show, and they were very proud to be the only Canadian brand that was invited because it's a business-to-business curated trade show specifically inspired and designed to facilitate the trade of premium cannabis products. So can you tell me a little bit of the evolution of, of this concept? Hall of Flowers is something I'm super proud to be, you know, co-founder of. You know, really, really simple idea that was at the forefront of this. So I have a couple partners on this. Um, my partner is Josh and Rama, who have an agency called Green Street, and my partner Danny, who's the CEO of the company. Really, in the early days, you know, obviously we'd seen the opportunity around cannabis for a long time, and you know, Rama had been in my ear for a while, saying, "Hey, we got to do an event. We got to do an event." And I think the real initial you know, spark was just saying, Hey, there's obviously been events I'd been going to, whether it was a, you know, smoke out like a concert that was kind of loosely cannabis themed where an act like Cypress Hill was playing since the nineties, all the way to some of these, you know, cannabis cup and Emerald cup and all these things, these kind of like consumer slash trade events. None of them felt like they were, this is not disrespect to anyone who does these events, but none of them felt like they were highly curated and highly produced. And I wanted to bring the production value and the quality of the curation of the event and the presentation that we had in fashion and that we really been cultivating in the fashion space for years and bring that to cannabis. So it wasn't just a parking lot with a bunch of pop-up tents that looked like a skate demo. I want to bring something that felt beautiful and immaculate and, and really put these brands on the platform that they deserved in these retailers and treat them with that type of level of respect and presentation. So I think that was the mission. And you know, we sat around and talked about it for about a year. And, uh, you know, finally my partner, Danny had the balls to quit his other job, um, where he was running one of the biggest fashion trade show companies in the world and, you know, come do this full time and really run after this. And it's been astounding that in less than three years, we built something that's as big as, or arguably this year without Corona would have been bigger than what took me a decade to do with agenda. And I think it only speaks to, brand, the concept, but also just the opportunity in this industry uh, and how many players and how robust it is. And I think we're only scratching the surface. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And you certainly do bring a level of design to what you do that is sticks out in any in any platform but certainly in the cannabis space where people are still you know grappling with the like the 70s and and, and the design and the hippie and the stoner vibes just before the show i received one of your emails and i was looking at it and go wow this is like really nice the design of it itself is so different from what you see coming out of that space for the most part that's a big part of what you're into i suppose yeah, I mean, look, I, I started off doing graphic design. I have an affinity for it and, you know, always working with different artists, so whether it's like us, you know, tapping Cody Hudson from Chicago, who's a very well-known graphic designer, does stuff for Nike and tons of other global brands and has amazing artwork to do the packaging for last season's Hall of Flowers or uh, Al from Free Gums, who's an amazing illustrator and graphic designer from Miami, you know, picking some of our favorite people to collaborate on the branding and packaging. And 
whether we think the average attendee or consumer even knows what that is, you know, we are the kind of guys who will spend $30,000 to make a logo, right? Because we really believe in the visual merchandising of this thing is important. And, you know, at the end of the day, yes, some people have, you know, better quality flour or more premium or more organic or whatever that is. But, you know, this is a branding and packaging game. And for our show is all about representing the top brands, our, our branding and packaging needs to be on par with those brands. And we need to create an environment and a platform where design is at the forefront. And you never were tempted to do your own products, whether in apparel or cannabis or any of these spaces that you're comfortable in? I've had various apparel projects over the years. Honestly, though, I, I think I've always been better at building a platform. One of my exhibitors at Agenda said something really smart to me one time. He came up to me somewhere some years into it. He said, Aaron, so you know what? He said, you're like Levi Strauss. And I go, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, in the gold rush in San Francisco, he goes, you know, Levi Strauss got rich by everyone was panning for gold and he was selling picks and shovels, right? And, you know, I took that to heart and I realized that that was maybe more my skill set, which is, you know, everyone's trying to do this one thing, whether it was pan for gold or sell skateboards and t-shirts or now sell cannabis. I've been better as a community organizer and giving everyone the tools to help get together. And some of those people will win, some of those people will fail and they continue to come and go and I'm continuing to provide the platform. And I think that's really been my core skill set as being an aggregator and community builder rather than a, uh, you know, trying to get in the, the pits and, and pan for gold with them. Uh, social media has been a big part of your success as well, like the emergence of social media and the iPhone, obviously, with the network. When did you first feel the, that social media was the thing that could really make a difference in your work? I was one of those people that like was naive to it, you know, so I definitely, I don't want to say like I'm early, but like, I'm pretty young in the big scheme of things, right? I'm 36 now. And when I started Agenda, I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. And the guys that work for me were my friends from high school. So, you know, one of my employee number one at Agenda was my best friend, Kellen, who just came back from college. And he's like, we got to be on Facebook. I'm like, what? Like, what the fuck is Facebook, right? Like, I didn't care, but he's, I'm like, okay, go create an account. Whether that was Snapchat or Instagram, like, not that any of those things are innovative now, but at the time, when these things were emerging technologies and my competitors were 50-year-old guys who slapped their name on you know, whatever culture audience they thought they could make a buck on, they didn't inherently understand the importance of being early on these platforms. And you know, once I picked them up, I was running the Agenda Instagram account myself and just putting up cool stuff. And again, kind of the same way that the business got started, just using these things organically and just having fun with it. And I think by being early and having fun with it and being young and, and being of the culture, I thought, you know, we, we, we had an advantage of being early and still trying to do that. It's getting harder now, but uh, I think always trying to jump on these things when they, when they come around, not after they reach scale. So whether it's trying to play with Billy Billy now or TikTok is obviously mainstream now, but getting on that a year ago was, you know, on the early side. So I think always trying to use whichever platform, you know, go where the audience is and, and uh, you know, not try to swim upstream has been important and, and trying to definitely listen. You know, I spend a lot of time when I'm hanging out, whatever it is, if I'm hanging around nine or 11 year old, you know, cousins of mine, it's like actually asking them, like, what, what do you, where do you get your information? What are you using? What are you reading? What, what are your friends on? I think like listening to really young people is a, a huge value because I'm old now and I don't understand. But <laughs> oh, I know yeah. The nine or 11 year old kid. Just think that. how I feel. <laughs> 
<laughs> and never writing anything off and saying like, I think a, a younger 15 year old me as a shithead would have like easily said like, Oh, that's stupid. Or that's that. Like, I don't think anything's stupid. I don't think I know. So I'm like, you know what? Like if that nine year old kid tells me that's cool. I'm like, fucking, he knows way better than me. Well, let's talk now about your network venture, which I've downloaded the app and spent some time on it. And it it looks great. First of all, I mean, I think you're up to your standards in the, the in the design side of it. Its tagline is "Shop at the speed of culture," a home shopping network for millennials and Gen X. I saw in in somewhere else that uh, you were being interviewed, where you said you mentioned that to somebody young and or or, or some maybe it was a artist who was a home shopping network, and they said, "What's that?" <laughs> so it was Jaden Smith who said that. And I was showing him our, uh, you know, company deck. And I said, you know, we're like QVC for the millennial Gen Z audience. And he looked me dead in the eye and said, what's QVC? And I literally had to explain it to him. And then I realized that like these young kids that literally don't know what that is, you know, which is a, a interesting um, But you context. did, you know, but you do. And that's what made it possible for you to come up with this concept, right? There's a lot of aspects to the app and the platform, but the idea of having you know, celebrities or people, recognized people selling product, you know, during like a short a period of time. Okay, we have one hour, we're going to sell something now. And it's, it used to be done live, right? Yeah, and we're still doing some live, but yeah, instead of Kathy Lee Gifford selling sweaters to a uh, 65-year-old in Minnesota watching TV, over, you know, ordering over the telephone, we're selling, you know, LeBron James sneakers through mobile live stream and, you know, native purchase, right? We're still putting a personality and a product and an idea in a video, but the way we're delivering that and curating that on a technology and, and cultural standpoint are very, very far apart. So it's really bringing the future idea of what, you know, QVC and Barry Diller were doing with HSN and QVC in the, you know, the 80s, 90s. But you're also creating content at the same time that is shot, like the short films, so the content, that's the fun part. Like QVC, you know, if you know what it is, you think of like someone standing behind a counter selling you a sweater, right? That's part of what we do. And we have fun, like almost doing our funny, almost like Saturday Night Live version of that. But, you know, we also are out there making films with musicians and, and athletes that cost us fifty or $100,000. And we also have really lo-fi content that we're making in the field with iPhones, right? So there's a range of content, but I think we have the ability to tell stories, whether that's in a expensive way, in a cheap way, in a fun way, in a serious way. So we've done everything from working with Nike and a Native American focused charity that they work with called N7 and making a very serious docu-style series, you know, piece of content about the Zuni tribe, all the way to doing a skit with DJ Khaled and Eric Andre that's very tongue-in-cheek and, you know, ridiculous sketch comedy, Tom Green style. And I think we can do it all. We just want to have fun with, you know, stories, products, and personalities. So do you think of yourself as a media company or how do you position your, your company? I think the one thing I want to do with Network is very similar in the way of the ideology of ComplexCon, which if you try to define what ComplexCon was and what we created there, it wasn't a music festival. It wasn't a TED Talk. It wasn't a food festival or a film festival. It wasn't a streetwear convention or a swap meet or an art fair. It was kind of all of those things and you couldn't really define it. And that's kind of what made it cool. So like with Network, yes, we're kind of like 
home shopping television. We're kind of like Snapchat. We're kind of like, you know, uh, an editorialized media site, a media company. We're also doing digital events. We're going to be an events company. Uh, we're going to do education. I, I don't want to be pigeonholed as being one thing because then you can define us. I, I want people to just, you know, like, what is that? It's network. It's just this thing that's aggregating all of pop culture and youth culture onto this platform in an interesting way. And also having the freedom, not only be defined on like, what's our business model. I also want to be defined on like our um, ideology. And what I mean by that is, is like, I want to make a brand that's like HBO. And the analogy there is like, hey, I've been watching HBO for 30 years. They have amazing shows. I go there once or twice a week to watch whatever show I love. And they have other shows that I have no idea what they are or I have no interest in watching them. I've never seen Girls. I've never seen Game of Thrones. Those shows are not for me. But I watch John Oliver and, and Bill Maher the through line of what HBO does is an amazing brand with amazing quality, but they can be anything. They're not just sports or just music or just this, right? Just drama. Like we want to be an aggregator for anything we think is cool, even if it's dramatically different and the audiences watching those two different things have no relation to each other. But I think that's a beautiful idea of like what we can be. Do you feel like you're kind of a vice in that respect? No, I, I think... I think we want to be network. I think Vice has done an amazing job at doing everything from amazing docu-style news editorial content to being, you know, raunchy and funny. So yes, Vice is very versatile. I would love if we could ever have won 100th of the audience and, and amazing editorial that Vice has done. But we just want to be broad, right? And again, thinking about us as a marketplace and a platform that aggregates all this cool shit whether that's video games, music, art, fashion, food, you know, just bring all this stuff together and finding the common thread for certain people, you know, that they may like three out of the 10 things that we're doing. But you only have it on the, the mobile platform. Is that going to remain that way? Because, you know, you don't have a website, for example, that duplicates what you have on the, on the phone. So here's the interesting part. I was spent my whole career doing right these events, right? And the beauty of why I was successful in the event industry is because I didn't know anything about it. When I go and think about doing events now, I know so much about it. I become paralyzed with fear because I'm like, oh, I, I know you that. Know everything this. that could go wrong. I'm like, <laughs> I know everything go wrong. I know what it costs. And I almost talk myself out of it. Right. Where when I first went, I'm like, you know, the ignorance was bliss that I didn't know anything. Therefore, I actually went much further because when you come institutionalized with knowledge, like we talked in the beginning, I actually failed, you know, later in my career on certain things where earlier in my career, I would have ran right through that wall. Not because I was courageous because I was stupid. So going into a content, digital media and e-commerce company, I don't want to say I didn't know anything, but this was not my area of expertise. And what I stumbled upon and the same way that my ignorance was bliss in events early on, my ignorance was bliss in, in digital media and e-commerce was this, that the, the conventional wisdom would have said, do this on YouTube, do this on Instagram, go to where the audience is and publish your content in a platform where everyone already has the app on their phone. They're already looking and it's an easier place to adapt audience and convert them. But what I soon learned is actually by creating our own platform, even though it's harder to get people there, when I get them there, I have 100% of their mind share. And when I think about any business, any media company, any anything in this age, what we're all in a war for is consumer 
attention and mind share because there's just so many options of where your attention can go these days. The, the hardest commodity to get is mind share. So when we get someone on that platform, we've got them, right? They're all, we're not competing with an algorithm or paying for reach. We've got them on there and we own that, that customer in a real way. Where on Instagram, even I saw a retail company, I won't name because I want to be respectful, who tried to do a very similar idea. They put, you know, they had already a massive mailing list. They had 800,000 followers on their Instagram. They tried to do the name of the retail store, TV, like their version of a QVC for youth culture. And they launched it about three months before we launched. And I kicked myself. I said, why did I overthink this? They didn't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to build a platform. They just went on Instagram live and they were selling right off there to their audience of 800,000. But when I saw them go live, only a thousand people tuned in because Instagram's crowded and, and you have to, you get suppressed by the algorithm. And even though the conventional wisdom would say, Hey, go to where you have the audience on the most popular platform in the world, you're competing for mindshare with hundreds of thousands of other relevant stories and people and algorithms. And it's actually hard to even get your people you already have quote unquote following you to tune in. And when we went live, we're getting 50, 60, 70,000 people to tune in on a platform that's just ours with way less people on it. So, you know, what I stumbled upon is having 100% of mindshare on our own platform is a million times more powerful than having one one thousandth, if, if that, one one millionth of mindshare on a more popular platform. I know that was a long-winded answer, but I think that's the key that I've kind of learned. Oh, it's, a, it's a good answer. And they own your audience too, ultimately. So you don't get any of that information about who they are. You don't collect any of that data. Yeah. And, and the sad thing, you know, you talked about me being on social media early, that guy, Kellen, say, let's get a Facebook going. Well, then it was, let's get a MySpace going, or whatever. Let's get a, an Instagram. Now let's get a Snap. Now we're trying to get TikTok. These things keep moving, right? And uh, then the platforms become irrelevant. The audience I built on Twitter is, is irrelevant, right? We need to keep trying to build these audiences and reinvent ourselves. And some platforms we're good at, some platforms we're bad at. And it's like, it's exhausting, right? There's always going to be something new and how do you know what's what and where do you invest your time and energy and how do you maintain all these platforms? Right now, it's like, let's just make our own platform good. And the people who come to us, we have 100% of their mind share. We're not trying to be the hottest dance thing on TikTok or whatever. So how has that changed of how you spend your time now versus how you had been spending your time with uh, your previous life at work particularly? I would say not, not that different. I'm very hands-on. I think the only thing that I do better than anyone else is just try really fucking hard and I put in the hours and I'm obsessed with work to a fail and I'm constantly turned on and I don't know how to stop looking at what's happening in the world, in culture, on Instagram, on the internet, going outside, going to places, going, I used to go to the mall, I guess I don't do that anymore, but like looking around, talking to people, just trying to uncover stones so I can understand what's happening. I'm familiar with Warren Buffett, right? And I guess apparently he, he sits around reading like, you know, you know, three fourths of his day, right? Cause he's just trying to get information. And then how do you use that information that you gain to your advantage? And I'm always just trying to get information. So I think that's the number one thing I'm doing is trying to make sure I have a great understanding of what's happening in the world, what people are doing. That's the number one most important thing. And then picking up the phone and actually calling people and talking to people and meeting with people. And I think that's the lost art that I did in my last company. I do in this company, like people reverted to this like email text message culture. And I know I can't do this in the time of COVID, 
and a Zoom meeting is great, but like my number one thing is like if I can get in the car and go drive to that client's office or go drive to that brand, that artist, whatever, and talk to them face to face, that's the number one thing I want to do because I will get such a meaningful result from that. And that applies across every business. And the people are willing to get off their ass and go somewhere and talk to someone and show up at their door. That's the number one thing that drives a business. And are you also looking for to make exclusive deals with uh, talent or in brands with regard to product Always. or representation? That's what, yeah. that's what drives a platform. You know, that ComplexCon, the meaningful thing where all the brands that made exclusive sneakers and exclusive merch that you can only buy there. That's why people bought tickets. So the aggregation of whether it is exclusive content, exclusive products, whatever that may be, is what makes any platform meaningful. Netflix is valuable because they have these five, you know, House of Cards, Tiger King, blah, blah, blah. You can only get that there. You go there, right? If a platform doesn't have something meaningful from a content or product perspective, then you're not going to go there. So I think exclusive, whatever that may be, content or product or a combination of both is the true value, right? And the app is just the delivery mechanism of those things. And if you have something truly meaningful, consumers will jump through a bad experience, right? Some kid will jump through a flaming hoop to buy a Yeezy if he can. So, you know, yeah, we like to think we're making a nice platform, but what really matters is the stuff on it. Well, thank you very much, Aaron Levant. That was a kind of a seminar in, in <laughs> doing business today. So I appreciate it. And I hope uh, all of my audience appreciates it as well. So be well. I appreciate it. Hope I didn't bore you guys and I appreciate the time and thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at shopburb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. Mm-hmm.